This is Live from the Table, the official podcast of the world-famous Comedy Cellar, coming at you on Sirius XM 99, Raw Comedy, formerly Raw Dog. A change for the better, I think, uh, in terms of names. A little less vulgar. Uh, it's also available as a podcast, um, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dan Natterman. I'm with Noam Dorman, owner of the ever-expanding world-famous Comedy Cellar. Present. Soon to be adding a room on the corner of 6th Avenue and West 3rd Street. Coming early... 25? 2025, yeah. Early 25, a beautiful new comedy theater that will set the comedy world in New York City on on fire. Uh, Pierre Lashenbrand joins us as well. We should, uh, we're being joined by Ricky Schlott, journalist Ricky Schlott, in a few minutes. Uh, prior to that, uh, just a couple things. Oh, oh that's probably good. her. I, I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't mention the, the passing of a former uh, Live from the Table guest and a, 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 a staple of the New York comedy scene, Al Martin who owned the New York Comedy Club and the Greenwich Village. He, he sold it to Emilio. Um, I don't remember his last name. Emilio's last you know, Emilio's last Anyway, he no longer owned the New York Comedy Club. He still owned the Greenwich Village Comedy Club right here on uh, McDougal Street. But uh, he was uh, a, 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 a larger-than-life figure in the New York comedy scene. I know, Noam, you were very fond of him. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked him very much. He, he got a, maybe now... Um, Maybe now that he's died, uh, he'll be more fondly thought of. He got a lot of, uh, I thought, very you know unfair criticism by the comics over the years. I don't think anybody spoke. No, nobody disliked him, but they were kind of like, um, you know, I don't know what the words they would. I, I didn't like they. He was a survivor. He was very successful. He 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 had a lot of rooms. He didn't go out of business. He never cheated anybody, as far as I know. Um, and I admired him. I thought he was, and I, I liked him. And yeah, and you know, and he was, and he was a good family man. Yeah, you know, um, that he was. Uh, oh, uh, are we? Is Ricky here? Hello, Hi, Ricky. Ricky. How do you do? Ricky has joined us. Ricky is settling in. I, I would like, whilst she is settling in, I, I would like to uh, ask what you think of Billy Joel's new song. This is off topic, but um, Noam's a musician, and I was wondering if he had heard Billy's uh, latest song, "Turn the Lights Back On." Yeah, I heard some of it. I I thought it was a disappointment. Oh, did you? Okay, I like it. Uh, I I, you know, I I don't think it's exactly at the level of scenes from an Italian restaurant, but I think it stacks up well with a lot of the go? modern. Okay, well, okay, with a lot of the modern pop stuff out there, um, I think it's pretty well, this, good. This is what I think. Yeah, uh, you come sit when you're. Um, uh, no, I mean when you want. I didn't. Uh, sorry. So this is what I think about the song. He hadn't released a song in like twenty years, yeah, fifteen well, years, I, uh, something like that. Yeah. And uh, so you expect it to really be powerful. And the song is nice enough, uh, but it's, it's, um, it's derivative and evocative of other Billy Joel songs. There's a few parts they, in it. Yeah, I heard Piano Man in there a little bit. Yeah, there's one part. Um, if I had a guitar, I could show you. But there's one part where it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, and it's like the chords, like, it's in C. It goes to E, E major, and and um, it's just like a, it's a very typical Billy Joel device that he's used better in other songs. And I really thought that well, if he's been sitting on this one song for all these years, and he said, "Well, that, I this, I must release this song," that this was really going to be something special. Yeah, uh, it still sounds like a B side a little. Well, bit. Um, it was good. I, he he co-wrote it. He didn't write 
the song himself. He co-wrote it with some younger people, which may be why it sounds a little more modern than the app. We're talking about Billy Joel's new song. I, I know this is not necessarily your not field it. of endeavor, <laughs> but um, but you being a young person, I and Billy being an old person, I thought maybe uh, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts, but you haven't heard the song. I haven't. No, I have a very splotchy sense of music taste because my dad is 86 now, so I grew up with like the 50s. Your dad's 86? Yeah, yeah and you're Gen was, Z. Yeah, I was a late addition to the family. Wait, talk to your, talk to your my, my, How old are you? I'm 23, so my dad was 63 when I was born. Oh, my God. Holy You're shit. like Harry Enten. Harry, yeah, Harry Enten. So I just have, like, know a lot of Elvis, and then there's this <laughs> huge cultural blind spot. And so, like, Fergie. It's really embarrassing That's hilarious. Yeah. Now, can I ask you a question? Wait, are you going to introduce her first? I'll introduce her, as we typically do on the show. Ricky Schlott, New York-based journalist, uh, commentator. She has a column in the New York Post. And she is author, along with our friend Greg Lukianoff, of The uh, Canceling of the American Mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she uh, writes a lot about uh, cancel culture on campus and Gen Z and the problems with Gen Z. And we'll get to all that. And Max, you're Gen Z too, right? So I'm a millennial still. Well, how old are you? 29. Oh, okay. Um, I don't necessarily know where the demarcation. So, are. so it's um, sixty-four is the end of the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. I think sixty-five to eighty, right? I'm and, not sure where the millennials start, but I know the oldest Gen Zers are born in ninety-seven, so they would be like twenty-six. Uh, I'm Gen X, um, as you clearly see. Sixty-five to eighty is Gen X. That's me in there. Yeah, six, sixty-five to eighty, eighty-one to. Uh, ninety six and ninety seven. Well, I would 2000, say if you have to squint, uh, to, if you have to, oh, squint, you have it up here. I was doing, it for, I was doing it from memory. If you have to squint to see it, you're probably Gen X. <laughs> okay, so here's my question, mm-hmm. and this, then we'll talk about politics. Okay. Uh, I, <clears throat> I'm sixty one, and I have young kids. My youngest is six. My oldest is twelve. Mm-hmm. And I'm very worried about what it's like for them to have an older dad. Mm-hmm. Now I'm pretty youthful, I have to say. I mean, I run around and I, but but, you know, they they still like my daughter will comment already, like oh you know oh dad you you look older already than you did from the pictures when I was a, a baby and stuff. So mm-hmm. what what was it like to have an older dad? It's definitely it's complex. Uh, my dad is super young and with it. Um, I think I probably have something to do with it. Um, we're like best friends. We're inseparable. I'd say that there's. A huge amount of upside, in my opinion, to having like a, a touchstone of a different generation and different time in my household. So immediately, I think it made me more resistant to some of the like generational trends. Where, I mean, my mom is is I share politics with my mom, but I think she might have been a little bit more amenable to like me being like, "Oh, that's offensive," or "We can't say that at the dinner table." Whereas my dad would be like, "That's not offensive." <laughs> like, <it sounds> like, <laughs> it's fun to think like that. Um, so I think it definitely grounded me in a way. Is that why you use the N word all the time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Um, <laughs> But I would say, I mean, there's also, of course, the the complexities of dealing with, I mean, my dad's older than my grandfather, so I'm dealing with the same challenges of an aging parent as my mom is right now. So nope, there's now, complexity. Your mom's younger than your dad. Yeah, 26 yeah. years. Yeah. Okay. So, so, but when you were growing up, when you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it like a, a drag to have an older dad or? Hardly. No, we were like. He would he would play basketball with me when I was doing the high school basketball team. I was terrible, and he was really embarrassed about it. Um, but like you know, he's he's stayed young, he stayed fit. Um, I would say the first time that it really like resonated with me that there was something strange about it was when I moved into my freshman dorm and my dad was like carrying stuff in for me, um, no problem, even though he was older at the time. And then my roommate's father was in his forties still, and I was like, oh, <laughs> this is a little weird. Everyone thinks this guy's my grandpa. Um, and just being in a different context where no one knew me and knew my family, that was the first time that I was like, oh, this is 
more unusual than I kind of took it for granted to be because, you know, growing up, everyone knew Ricky's dad's old, whatever. But You know, I think you mentioned that you might have something to do with your father being youthful. That might be, or it might be that the fact that he was able to have a kid mm-hmm. at that age indicates a certain vigor and vitality. Such That's true. That, you know, so who, know, who knows what the... Uh, the, it's not as old as you think, Dan. Sixty-one, sixty. He, he was conceived, well, conceived when he was sixty-two, maybe. I don't mm-hmm. know. Around. Well, I don't know how that. You, you know, a man at sixty-two is still uh, able. Still to. Got it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know about eighty-seven, but sixty-two, they still. They're still able. To, okay. Well, that may be. But, but I. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 well, I'm not too far away, you know. But although I look good, I, I'll acknowledge that. But um, surely, as a kid, though, it, it. When did it hit you? You know, because when you're real little, I guess you didn't know. But then mm-hmm. at some point, you're like, well, something's not right here. And so, <laughs> not I've, that it's not right, but something is different about your father. I've, I kind of have always known it because my brothers are like in their 60s. I was I had middle-aged brothers when I was a kid. I had nieces that were older than me and nephews and stuff. And so I just always knew that my family is different, for sure. I mean, it, it just was a fact of life. It wasn't um, something that really bothered me too much. I mean, I definitely have like... I think I had premature anxieties about like mortality and stuff that that I, a child of a much or younger parent would not have had, but that's just life. Well, I, I think every child has the fear that because every child their parents are old, even if they're young. So every mm-hmm. child fears their parents are, are. So you and your you and your other siblings have different mother. Yeah, I'm the only one um, from from my mom, so I'm like her only child, but. There's a lot of slots in the world, and I know this is another no god. Do you find that because you share, you share different genetics that you it, it's it's like kind of obvious you you share different genetics than the siblings, like uh, the um, differences? Yeah, I mean it would be quite a stretch to like pick the two out two of us out of a room. If one of my brothers were in a room full of people, you'd never be like that's Ricky's. Sibling. What about personality wise? Um, I think <clears throat> I see how they're like my father in some ways, but um. Yeah, I mean, my brothers and I get along very well, but we just, it, being like Gen X men and a Gen Z woman, it's it feels more like an uncle probably, mm-hmm. I would guess, is probably the closest approximate, but not a ton of like glaring similarities between us, to be honest. So we have a 29-year-old son who is uh, my stepson, mm-hmm. so it's kind of similar, and um, I mean, he's nothing like me. It's it's, it's completely obvious he's from a different mm-hmm. uh, uh Coupling. All right. Well, by, by the way, just <clears throat> one more on. preliminary question. Yeah. Ricky is short for Richelina? It's short for Erica because oh. my dad already had Richard Jr. and I was the first girl. So it was a roundabout way to name me after him. That's so cute. Ricky short for well, I think not of, Richard. I think Ricky's of, a great name for a girl. I think of Ricky <laughs> Lake is my only association with, with yeah. the female Ricky. Ricky. don't lose that number as well. Uh, Ricky that's right. a number, yeah. yeah. yeah There's a number. That's because that's you have an older father. You know that song. I like those names like Ricky. I wanted We were going to have a, another kid turn out to be a boy, but I wanted to name her Josie because it's like mm, cool. Like, hey, well, Josie. Also, there's hey, there's jo- Josie, another Steely Dan. There's another. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm thinking of the song by, by the outfield. Josie's on a vacation. No, Steely Dan, when Josie comes home. I don't know that Anyway, okay. You know that song. I don't know it. Enough preliminary shit. We're here with Ricky Schlatt, Gen Zer, that is that is fighting the good fight against wokeism. What's wrong with your generation? <laughs> so many things. Where do you want to start? <laughs> well, I'll leave it to you to, to. Um, I mean, I I read the Coddling of the American Mind, which my co-author wrote with Jonathan Haidt when I was a freshman in college at NYU, and I found that. Um, like what it diagnoses in there in terms of of fragility and safetyism and the a sense that like words can wound you and you need to be protected and just this crippling 
um, like undercurrent of anxiety and depression in my generation. When I read that book, it, it felt like sociologists like looking in and diagnosing all these things that I'd seen the symptoms of, but I couldn't quite figure out like what was up with the general cultural trends that way. Um, and I think if I were to diagnose what's wrong with my generation, I would say that book is probably like the, the best start. It's how this second book came to be because I had, I'd been so impacted by it. Um, but I would say quite a lot. Um, I, I think that in a lot of ways, we're the victims of a, a culture that has generally shifted away from free speech norms and classical liberal norms. And we're the first generation to be really born into a post-liberalism world and, and where like a liberalism is rampant on campuses and places that should be bastions of free speech and should teach you to think for yourself and should teach you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or or be um, enterprising and yet we've been taught the complete opposite of that in a, in a victimhood mentality but so many of our parents don't really inculcate those free speech values or they take for granted that we're being raised in a way where classical liberalism is is taught to us where sticks and stones are taught to us but it's quite the opposite describe what describe for people who, who may not know we don't have this you know uh, I don't know who listens to us but what what do you, what do you mean by classical liberalism um, you know, like the old. I almost idioms. insulted the audience. I take it back. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think like the the old idioms of a free speech. Prepare y'all's that... fans. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no worries. Um, <laughs> the the old idioms of like a free speech culture that I think were really ingrained in American society until recently, like sticks and stones into each their own, and everyone's entitled to their own opinions, which were just part of the American ethos until very recently. Um, and I, you know, a lot of things I'll talk to my mom about. Like it's, I'm so amazed that I didn't understand the the philosophical value of free speech until I taught it to myself during the pandemic, reading John Stuart Mill, which I'd never been assigned before in college. Or I, I like, I, I'll bring things up to her about like anti fragility, and she'll be like, "Yeah, I thought that that was just like the world that you were growing up in. I didn't understand that when you went off onto this college campus or this high school campus that it's completely inverted, and that you're taught that you're a victim, and that you're taught to look at it." Uh, people through the lens of oppressor and oppressed. And so, you know, I think a lot of it is just an an older generation that wasn't totally aware of just how distorted those classic American values have become in our culture today. We actually had Jonathan here a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about uh, the impact of social media on Mm -hmm. on your generation, I guess, and and even younger. Younger, younger. Mm -hmm. You know, but... um, Generation Alpha? Is that what it's called, Generation Alpha? Yeah, Gen Alpha. I mean, I had an iPhone when I was 10, so I can, I'm like the guinea pig test case for, I guess it came out a couple years before I was 10, but like the first generation of kids or sub-generation of kids who has always been plugged in since day one, Instagram by the time I was 11, so I'm, I'm certainly can speak to that too. But what effect do you, do you think that has on, you know, that generation that grew up with it? You know, I think I'm, I'm with John that I don't think it's quite as much of a, like, the screen time itself is causing dysfunction for people, but it's what it's replacing. And when you look at, you know, like up to eight hours a day that kids are spending on their screens, what would have been there instead? And it might not be that they're doing something so terrible online. They could be, but they would have otherwise been outside playing with their friends or socializing in a normal way or doing normal rites of passage. We know kids are having less sex, that they're not getting driver's licenses, that they're staying in, that they're not socializing with friends in person. I think that a lot of like all those things are kind of a formula for just a normal childhood and growing up into adulthood. And I think that a lot of young people are stunted as a result of that kind of replaced time. Well, regarding less sex, um, it'd be hard to have less than I did uh, uh, as a teenager. <laughs> but um, I would I would think that 
I would think that social media is very helpful. It would have been a godsend to a guy like me who is just a lot better. And I have a joke about that, you know, about sending a text and being a lot more um, confident than I would have ever been in person mm -hmm. or with Instagram and I mean, Bumble and Tinder. You know, th this is a godsend to the shy people that that can flourish whilst behind a screen and you know, and, 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 and be yeah, more. Yeah, but like, haven't you ever heard of like rejection therapy and stuff and how actually getting, you have to act, get yourself out there to be able to comport yourself normally in social situations. Like imagine if you'd had for as long as you've been like dating, you had something to fall back on where you don't actually have to like build up the guts to go approach a woman at a bar and you have to do a texting back and forth. And yeah, but I still haven't developed that skill. <laughs> well, because I think as you'd a, be even worse if you were like a Zoomer. <laughs> as a comedian also, I, you know, because I'm on stage, you know, and I let them come to me even before Bumble and Tinder <laughs> and this stuff, you know, you know, I would let them come to me after a show. Now, not that they all came at to me after a show, but if they happened to come, then, then I would be, I still am not confident. I still can't, uh, you know, just approach anybody that I that hasn't. I saw this statistic recently that like it was something like fifty six percent. I'm fudging the numbers, but it was like a little more than half of men under the age of thirty, like eighteen to thirty, had never approached a woman in person, which doesn't surprise me at all. But I also don't think that that's healthy for a culture or like entrusting dating apps with algorithms and all of their complexities to match make for an entire generation. I don't think is a a good thing. Are you allowed to still approach a woman in person? No. You're not allowed to. It's like, and it, it not never happens. asking consent. No, you can approach her. You just, you, at some point, if she says no, maybe this, maybe you try one more time. I mean, at what point it becomes, at some point it becomes harassment. You, hey, <laughs> would, would you like to get a cup of coffee? Oh, no, thanks. I'm not really interested. Please. And, you know. Um, <laughs> How about tomorrow? Now, you know, <laughs> at, at some point, I, it, I don't know what that point is. It's, you become like a harasser. Mm -hmm. well, there's are, are, certainly a point, but I think. Are you single? I am. Now, what do you do? You, do, you, do you get upset if a man approaches you? No, certainly not. But I have even some of my like female friends who share politics with me will, will be like put off by that. It's it's really stigmatized. I think growing up with like dating apps and never having to actually. I mean, statistically speaking, you're you. It's a better use of your time to be like on the crap or swiping through people rather than just taking a gamble that someone that you approach is single. And I think an entire generation just grew up with that crutch. And now it's stigmatized to even do it the other way around, which is crazy. I I, th I don't think that's healthy. I do think there's a pendulum swing coming, though. Like, I know people who are doing speed dating and want to meet in person, but it's like it's totally chilled. Like, nobody, nobody is just walking up to anyone cold unless it's like an exceptional circumstance in my so I suppose that a, a guy that that was blessed with the, the ability and the confidence to do that uh, would stand out. For a lot of women, they'd be like, wow, this guy's really, you know. Uh, Quite possibly. You know, for some women, I mean. Yeah, I think I, my friends fall into two categories where they, they're always perturbed by anyone approaching them or they're always saying, like, I wish that people would approach me. I actually have some female friends who are doing it now themselves, but that's... Well, that's good. Have we somehow backed into a more sexist age than we had prior where, where women, we don't come out and say, but we're protecting women mm -hmm. much more than we used to. Like nobody's yeah. going gonna to say a woman can't approach a man. Like that's not even on the table. Yeah. Of course a woman can approach a man. Yeah. Of course a woman can try to kiss a man. Mm -hmm. But women, more than any time in my lifetime, there there's this assumption that they have to, you, it's not equal. They mm -hmm. have to be protected from all sorts of things. Am I mm -hmm. wrong about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, I certainly take issue with a lot of 
um, like third wave feminism sort of protectionism and stuff. And I do think that there's a, a weird kind of undercurrent of misogyny in a lot of that as well, as though women can't handle themselves or, or gracefully handle a rejection if somebody is not someone that they're interested in who approaches them. Um, or that, I mean, I think that there's tons of excesses in the Me Too movement. I do think that the original iteration of it was necessary, but it's the pendulum has swung way too far. I think due process has gone out the window and like a lot of the- Did you say due process? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. No, you know, there's a big issue now, a big due process issue going on. Yeah. I'm afraid to talk about well, it yet, but I'm going to talk about all it. All right, do it. No, no, I'm but, not going to, you know, what you, mm -hmm. um, I, I, you have feelings about, I'm, I'm, Oh. I'm so upset about this. You mean somebody that got fired without due process? Yes. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Yeah, I think um, I think but, I know but, what you're talking about, and I think it's. But well, we can open up the issue more generally. Well, and just you can you can talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll refrain from stray sand affecting it because I think that that's possible at this point because it's so early. Uh, but I would I, say I, I, you lost me with the stray sand effect. <laughs> there's um there's a term back. You know what the stray sand effect? Wait, is, is that the thing is where everybody the, thinks they remember something but they don't? No, no. it's like Barbara Streisand. There was some like guy taking photos for some random thing that no one has ever heard of of like beach erosion in California, and then Barbara Streisand found out that her estate was like in one of the photos it was like a large scale photo mm -hmm. and then she tried to like sue him or retaliate or get him to take that like take that photo back and then that photo was like the cover of every freaking tabloid ever because okay. she didn't want anyone to see it and so now everyone knows about this photo that no one would ever have known about before i i, I would just say to any jewish celebrity that might be listening <laughs> would you stop suing and making us look bad <laughs> Um, Why'd but, you laugh? Okay. <laughs> and Schlott sounds like a Jewish name, but she's not. Um, uh, so, so, so two crosses it's, 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 uh, I guess it's German, I suppose. It's, it is German. I, I thought you were afraid of vampires. So, so, um, the, so uh, this, so, yeah, I don't want to like call attention to this. Well, actually, so, it, so, let's, but, so let's, we can talk let, about the issue more generally. One yeah. second. So let's pause at the Streisand effect because one okay. of the things that I'm grappling with on this, on this issue is issue. Yeah. I, I, I'll say what it is because that, um, Oh, you was talking. suspended at the Atlantic. Is that the in the nervousness about amplifying it? Mm -hmm. No one's standing up for him. We're going to allow. They're yeah. going to amplify it. The, his yeah. detractors are going to amplify yeah. it and and establish the narrative yeah. before we're even got our got gotten out of bed, mm -hmm. and then it will be hard to push back. And it's so the concern about the Streisand effect. It has to start with the assumption that, well, if I don't say anything about this, is just going to disappear, and I don't mm -hmm. think it's going to. So that's what, so yeah. that's what I'm torn about. Well, I know there's an ongoing investigation with the Atlantic, and that they're they've not cut ties with him permanently. No, they, they did. The, oh, the, well. They've suspended. They've suspended um, publishing him until the investigation has concluded. Which I think. I mean, I, the did headlines they say were. Yeah, it's an yeah, internal investigation. It's an internal investigation. The headlines were definitely misleading on it. Um, like the headlines of I think there was a Mediaite article that said that they cut ties, but like they say in their official statement that they've suspended publishing him until the investigation is finished. But I'll tell you, like my thoughts on this. First of all, I, I read the original essay in which she accuses him. I think that there's, you know, there's a, a lot of questions about like how reliable that narrative can be. I think it's a gray area kind of he said, she said situation. I wasn't in the room. I'm not going to comment on what the like lines were crossed or what weren't. However, like the HR department of the Atlantic is not a police department and we can't expect like HR people to be able to two and a half years later, 
figure out what happened in this room. And we sh also shouldn't expect that like they should be the only arbiters of justice or that. I mean, this isn't even his full-time employer. I think that the entire thing is concerning to me. I think Believe All Women is actually really detrimental to women who are victims of sexual assault and who feel concerned about coming forward because there have been so many examples of I, I just I don't know I don't think I, it sets a terrible precedent I mean I the public shaming element there's no due process in any of it I think we could change it to listen to all women and that's valid listen to what they have to say don't yeah. dismiss them but don't I mean, be but, believe them without some sort of you know evidence yeah and I, I mean I know I'll get shit for this about, because there's always the counter argument of like how many rape cases get closed by by police or or a lot of them end up just being inconclusive. But I do think that there's there needs to be an impetus to actually involving law enforcement in a timely manner rather than all this time later expecting that somehow people at the Atlantic who are not law enforcement are going to f be able to figure out a true picture of what happened at that point in time. Like, it's just, it's a very complicated, messy situation, I think. It's a problem, I think, with no great solution because a lot of women don't come forward for various valid reasons. and um, Yeah, I just don't think coming forward on Twitter and screenshotting your email when there's an ongoing investigation. I, I agree with you very much. I, I, we, can't have a, we can't have a world where our livelihoods, and it's more than our livelihood, it's um, our ability to exist in polite company. Mm-hmm hang on the honor system yeah no absolutely we can't and I, I mean i say this all as a woman who's been like the target of unwanted sexual advances many times in my life and have dealt with it in my own time um like i'm not i'm not naive to the issue it's an issue um and i think that there should be recourse where where it's due and where it's necessary but i think that this sort of example is just it's it's scary. I mean, I I think it has also a chilling effect on just people in general and their interactions with each other. Like it almost there's like this cloud of like doom that if you do or say the wrong thing, it could be used against you, particularly in the world of journalism. It's just feels like a lot of people like like cafeteria level, like gossiping and, and people at their different tables just ready to tear down the person at the opposite one on Twitter whenever any anyone accuses anyone of anything. There are. um did you find the, the statement from the Atlantic? I think so. The, uh, we are aware of the allegations concerning. Is that the whole statement? I want the whole statement. Right. Said in a statement. No, 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 go put it back, put it back. It said, it says, <laughs> said that hyperlink said in a statement. I can, I'll read click, it. Click. Um, we're aware of the allegation concerning a freelance contributor to the Atlantic. We take such allegations seriously. The accused freelance contributor is not an employee of the Atlantic. We have not published any new work by the freelance contributor since being made aware of the allegation, and we suspended our relationship with the freelance contributor last month when we first learned of the accusation. We will, of course, be following any potential new developments in this matter. Yeah, so I, that's why. So I, I didn't say they're investigating, um, and I don't. I don't think they are. I don't know. Um, but Wait. so so there are there are. And there's a lot more to this story that I, that, I mean, there's a lot more. People should go online. There's a lot more to it. But I'm going to tell you off mic some of the other stuff. But um, there are tough cases where stories are very old, where, where I, I can't think off the top of my head, but for various reasons, the law seems like not a perfect fit and mm -hmm. somehow unfair, an unfair um, way to shunt 
somebody of, to prevent somebody from getting justice. However, this case is not old. It's about two years old. Um, she has full recourse of the civil system or, or the criminal system should she want it. She doesn't appear to be shy about speaking about it because she's written yeah. thousands of words about it and done and then two or three. A month later, followed up when that didn't catch on. Yeah, that's and right. And then named him. Yeah, no, and, I think there's a there's definitely a public shaming element, and there's a, I think there was a deliberate attempt to bring the Atlantic in in a way that wasn't necessarily proper or fair by screenshotting an email that she sent to their editor-in-chief and named him and his full name and stuff. And like, and it points the finger and it like, is it about justice or is it about public shaming? And what even is justice in that circumstance? I'm not sure, but it doesn't feel like a... It, it really... So, so let, me, let me be very clear. I'm, I'm very agitated about this issue. So I know him. We know him. Mm-hmm. I've been friends just, with him. We're not buddies. But right. um, I've known him and I've socialized with him. And I will tell you... Uh, people you know who who know me over the years will know that what I'm saying is true. It really has almost nothing to do with my feelings about this case. I've been almost equally upset about other cases of people I'd never met. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a basic principle at stake here, which is that what I said you can't you just can't live in a world where where people can choose not to use. The institutions, institutions which are the envy of the world, by the way, that we've set up that can compel testimony, put people under oath, subpoena the cell phones, find out what she said to her friends, what he said to his friend, whatever it is, and as as best as humanly possible, reach a conclusion here and then determine punishment Mm -hmm. in a similar way. No, well, you know, with the credibility of objectivity and the, the, uh, you know, the of, of the government as of saying, no, I, I don't want to do any of that. This is much easier. Yeah. I'll tweet and I'll accomplish exactly what I was hoping to do through the lawsuit because I don't really want the money, I guess, you know, I, or you don't want the burden of proof. Yeah. Potentially. So, and, I mean, and that, and that the Atlantic who has written and published articles criticizing exactly this just folded like this mm-hmm. where, well, where, what, what they could have I had a situation like this once in my organization. It was, it was more complex than the Atlantic phase because it was someone who worked for me. She doesn't work for the Atlantic. And without going into the details, the facts were, were um, immediately difficult. And I said to her, listen, I, I can't adjudicate this, but I will... You can get in my car right now, and I will take you to the sixth precinct. I know the mm-hmm. people there, and I'll I'll be able to walk you in, mm-hmm. and you can, and I'll I'll make sure that you you can handle this. And she declined, and then, and I, I, I weighed on me, and then a month later, I saw them making out at the bar, and a year later they had a child. Mm. Now, that is not to say that she wasn't raped. You know, I, I, stranger things have happened, right? I, mm-hmm. I really don't know. But I thought it was quite a good illustration of why it was that I, that I did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Th- th- imagine I had 
fired him. And by the way, and and and, and the, the Atlantic, I mean, this is your interview that I'm talking, but the Atlantic no. is quite aware of what downstream of that. It's not just it's like it's like if I let a comedian go because he raped somebody. Yeah. Every club, word gets around, right? It's not like yeah. it's 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 really his entire thing is gonna go. And um and then imagine that happened to him. And then actually he ends up in a relationship with a woman. That's, mm-hmm. That's crazy, right? Yeah. Well, I, I would just say yeah. two things. Number one is if what she's saying is true, then she has a right to tweet it. Um, of course she has a right to tweet it. You know, and, and, Not and, about hers, about the... Well, I understand but, that. But, 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 let's, I, just, let's just presume for the sake of argument, she's telling the truth. Okay, I just... None, I, none, I, none I don't, of this has to do with me wanting to question anybody. Like, you know, I, I'm just saying that I don't want to like dump on her because she didn't go to the police. I'm and dumping it's on the Atlantic. I'm not saying you. Yeah. I'm saying I'd like to just state... My opinion is, is that if somebody rapes you, you can tweet it, you can go to the police, you can do whatever you want. Fuck that guy. As far as what the Atlantic did, that's a different matter. The Atlantic, you know, should, I agree with you regarding the course of action that the Atlantic takes. Because the Atlantic doesn't know the truth. She knows the truth. The Atlantic does not. The Atlantic also could never know the truth. Like, that's just the, it's insane to expect them to be able to. Years later, between two people with a like a ongoing relationship with one another, there's no way that, you know, it wasn't like some dramatic event where there's uh like physical evidence that she gathered or anything like that. Um, you know, I I think also we're under we underestimate as a culture what these sorts of accusations, whether or not they're founded, like what this he said she said sort of situation, what that does to women in the workplace. I think that there's a a meaningful. Um, consequence where women are treated sometimes like like they're a liability or a danger and I don't I don't like I understand why men sometimes they don't want to take a meeting alone with a female colleague in the way that they might a male colleague or they might feel a little bit more nervous I mean I think that you can you can feel the tension and the stigma sometimes in workplace settings because of that Um, which I think that's not healthy for society either that's not healthy for gender equality that's not healthy for Men and women being able to work side by side with each other with the reasonable expectation that, you know, there's due process if anything were ever to happen with the kind of ambient threat of, of sexual dynamics in a workplace. But, you know, I, I think that women suffer as a result of this, too, for sure. Well, I, I never I've never had the fear of taking a meeting alone with a woman, but uh, I do know people do. Yeah, that. I, I do know that. I've, I've been invited to meetings with. HR people there because like, and I get why some young men, especially in leadership positions, just don't want to be put in a situation where there's not a third pair of eyes there. I, I get it. Okay. But the the pendulum often swings far in the yeah. other direction. When I was your age and I was, you know, trying to get writing jobs, I would walk into meetings in Hollywood and I wasn't connected. I didn't know anyone. I was hustling my way Mm -hmm. into this industry and I would walk into a meeting of a room full of guys and the guy in charge would look at you and, you know, would say something like, oh, I didn't know they made hot writers Mm -hmm. and everybody would laugh Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't funny. Absolutely. Now, like, I have yeah. a thick skin, okay? And, but it's not okay to do that. And I. Not to a woman, to a man, it would be okay. Nobody's going to do that to a man. Yeah, that's true. I, I, mean, I mean, it's 100%. I agree with you. I think yeah. me too corrected on things, but then course corrected in a way that just we still haven't figured out where that. I agree. I, is. I agree with that 100%. I think that 
there is some middle ground here yeah. that's fucking reasonable and that's not it, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, my first job um, in the media was with Megyn Kelly, who was like the OG Me Too person. And I, I totally respect that. I think that there were there was stuff going on in the workplace that I'll never or hopefully never have to encounter um, just by by the coincidence that I wasn't working like pre-2017. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, 100%. We're, we're glad for that, right? Yeah. Like, Although I think I'm just super not glad with the, the overcorrection or the fact that not even the original overcorrection, but the fact that we're now like this has been going on for years. Cancel culture has been a thing for years. I feel like we were at a cultural point where maybe we were starting to realize that due process was necessary because everyone was getting torn down right, left and everywhere. And then something like this can just randomly happen again. Like it feels like 2018. Like what happened to the last what, five what, years? What um, I, I believe, and you might know at least as much or more than what I know about this, that world is very incestuous. Mm-hmm. These are all friends of friends and they know mm-hmm. each other. And the, and this this decision that they're making is really not is is not an objective decision. It's it's really because there's also it's a personally pressured decision by this person who knows that one and this person mm-hmm. so with it, she's telling the truth, whatever. And and it's the most cowardly. It's just the most and exactly what you said is is right. It's it's things were s- seeming to get a little bit in order. People were yeah. seeming to get some perspective on the excesses and the benefits of what we've been through and kind of shedding some yeah. of the excesses and his ease and sorry sort of stuff that we thought was yeah. in the past. And, and arriving at a at a sensible positive outcome. And this is just huge setback. It's like you have a scab, it's almost and then you just pick it yeah. off. It's got a st- Yeah. So upsetting. Sorry, Dan. Oh yeah. So um I mean by the way, we this issue keeps coming up and coming up, you know, every however Long, you know, every couple of years or whatever, or even more frequently, it happened with Shane Gillis. He had, you know, SNL was pressured. Probably they didn't really feel outraged. I don't think about what Shane Gillis said, but they fired him because they felt pressure. And you know, Louis Netflix felt pressured. They let him go. And so the question keeps coming up: To what extent can a business should a business, th- you know? Uh, Cut ties with somebody not because they're morally outraged, but because they have a they have stockholders, they have their own bottom line to worry about. They have, you know, they're making a business decision. And and Noam, you know, we've discussed this. Like, you know, who would you let on stage if you knew that, rightly or wrongly, the the, the audience wouldn't would be outraged? You know. Well, two things. First of all, it's it's there may be overlap, but it's not good to conflate situations where we know what happened with situations where we don't know what happened. In some of the examples you gave, we, mm-hmm. we knew the facts and how should the business react knowing the facts. And mm-hmm. this is another case mm-hmm. where they, nobody knows the facts and, and they're just going to allow, mm-hmm. an, 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 not anonymous, but a, a, you know, a, a very undetailed fuzzy accusation mm-hmm. to decide. Well, it's a long detailed article, um, but the, even the, the content, de- not even many details the content in, the in the article, I think is... It's it's so like gray area. He said, she said stuff that it's it's impossible even with this like thousands of words long essay to understand fully what happened. Yeah, I wouldn't call the article detailed uh, as to the facts at all. Yeah, it's detailed about her feelings and about political statements and, and the blah, aftermath. Blah, blah. Yeah, but I mean, we don't even know the most basic facts 
Like the, fir- the first questions that would pop into your mind when I told you a story, you could not find them in, in the article. Mm-hmm. That we would all have. But, so, yeah, sorry. So, so um, my, my feeling is that there are, some, there are some tough cases, but my feeling was all along, and this was contrary to the advice that I got at the time when Louis came back, but it proved to be true, that if you have a strong, principled argument to make, as to why what you're doing is the right thing to do, people will back down. And by the way, as you said, most of them don't even care to begin with. There's, there's a huge, like, I always used to joke, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Like, mm-hmm. Twitter really is like the Wizard of Oz. There, there's these, you know, 50, 100,000 people on Twitter that make you feel like the whole world is coming down on you. And actually, the lines around the corner for the comedy seller were never... Yeah. Affected even a little bit. So so the first thing is don't jump to the conclusion that it's going to hurt your business. It probably yeah. won't. Yeah. And second of all, as a leader, you do have the ability to persuade people. You know, like like when you in this case that we're talking about now, if the Atlantic had written a paragraph, no, not a paragraph, but like one of these open letters about it or just an essay explaining it. They have very, very powerful arguments they could make. Mm-hmm. By the way, drawing on the arguments that have already been made in the Atlantic, because the Atlantic has published articles skewering all these notions. They they published some pretty good anti cancel culture, mm-hmm. um, me too, not skeptical, whatever the right adjective, but you know, uh, uh, definitely they they publish articles defending this rush to judgment for certain men who have been accused and whatever it is, and, and they could certainly just point to their own things and 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 then if it got too hot you know they could back down mm-hmm. they don't have to throw in the towel you've often said you know when you start going down this road like where does it end like anybody can accuse anybody of anything right like i have no idea what happened with that woman in that room but that's beside the point right it's like if just accusing somebody of something is enough to Get them fired, derail their career. I mean, it's insane, right? Let's think of it by analogy for a second. Then I want to talk about the SATs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Your livelihood is money. And then, of course, you could put a price on your, maybe it's a higher price, as I said before, and your your ability to exist in in the polite company of your people, of your milieu. Um, Now, your bank account is money too. There is no way we would ever support any kind of society where somebody could touch your bank account as punishment without due process of law. No way. In Canada, they kind of did with the truckers. <laughs> yeah, Canada. Well, and it's an outrage, right? Yeah. In, in America, like, well, no, that's your yeah. bank account. Nobody could touch your money. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, what I'm saying now ought to appeal to liberals because liberals are the ones who normally support ownership in your job, union rules, no union contract, whatever allows somebody to get fired like like Mm. this, right? This uh, highly skeptical of at work employment, highly skeptical of the the notion of freelance and gig economy. They want Mm -hmm. freelancers to have all the protections of employment. So philosophically, they're going to resort to things now. He's a freelancer. He's, you know, they can fire from anywhere that they always stood against Mm -hmm. and in the end they're creating this alternate system where somebody can take your bank account they're going to take all 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 your bank account constructively um 
with zero recourse and zero process. And they're going to pat themselves on the back for doing it. Mm-hmm. Isn't it great that we found a, we've made an end run around all these things that we, we now all you want to do is ruin somebody is 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 tweet tweet to the employer and then we expect the employer and then the final thing I say and because I'm seeing this firsthand and what's so foul about the atmosphere is that actually I would say not just a majority I'd say 80 90 percent of the people working at the Atlantic think this is bullshit yeah and they're afraid to say so. Yeah. So, so you you can't even. So even if you could have a a an inquiry into truth here, you can't because the people you would need to speak truthfully are afraid of getting in trouble for saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So you can't even have an open hearing, as it were, within that universe because yeah. within that universe, only one side is really allowed to speak freely. Yeah. And it's I th- awful. So. And I think this industry is particularly um, sensitive to that because so much of it is built off of reputation and, and like taking moral stances and stuff. And if there's one even question about your your ethics or your personal character, like it can be impossible to come back from that unless you want to come back as like the distorted. I've been canceled and now I'm in my echo chamber with the people that I brought me with me to my little corner of the Internet. So it's it's. It's scary. I'm I'm completely with you. I, I've I've <laughs> and these are the same people who write all these articles. Like they just, you know, they just pointing their judgmental fingers at any politician who, you know, buckles for Trump or like anytime somebody mm-hmm. acts in their own self interest in a cowardly way. This is like you know half of what they write about these politics. And then the second they have to uh, make a tough decision, show some backbone. Mm-hmm. They fold. Yeah. And they're not politicians. They're journalists. Yeah. They took, this is a profession that's the, supposed to be the opposite. We understand politicians. Their, their, their oath is to reelection, right? That's, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. But journalists oath is supposed to be the principle. Mm-hmm. Now, hopefully politicians have a little bit of that too, but, but you know, they're not supposed to, journalists are, are supposed to stand for something more. Jeffrey Goldberg is supposed to stand for something more. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Dartmouth reinstated the SATs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it. I think that's great. Wait, what's going Cause I don't have kids. So what, what was the situation with the SATs to begin it, with? Um, during 2020, I, th- I mean, there had been the, the background of a lot of agitation, particularly like in the Ibram X. Kendi anti-racist world, that disparities in, um, average SAT scores on the group level was indicative of the fact that the SAT itself or that standardized testing itself was in itself racist. Mm -hmm. Um, And that had been a debate that had been happening in like the op-ed section of the New York Times for a while, but I don't think people had taken it so seriously that it could actually come out into the open. But then the pandemic happened and all these schools suspended the SAT um, or requirements for the SAT and went test optional. I think understandably at first, because you don't want like a bunch of kids in some super spreader event, like taking tests in March for the next application cycle. But then they never put it back. And like a lot of schools, like Harvard, for example, Already until the class of 2030, there's no SAT requirement. And and it was the single, in my opinion, objective standard or or numerical standard that that schools had to go by, um, considering that GPAs don't really mean anything anymore because everyone gets an A. Like the average GPA went from like roughly like 3.2 to like 3.3 over like the course of five years or something crazy because we all need gold stars apparently in my generation. So I have no idea when it comes down to these ultra selective schools and picking between two kids with great grades and great essays that their parents could have written and, you know, extracurriculars that some 
$100,000 a year college uh, counselor could have picked for them. Like where, how could these schools possibly differentiate between these perfect on paper kids except for bystanders? What about the, the AP exams? Is that also thrown out the window? I don't know if there's um, still a, there was not a requirement for APs when I applied. But but certainly, right. yeah, like you could, like if somebody got a five on the Calc BC, yeah, uh, exactly. you know, you could be pretty sure that this is a pretty smart cook. Yeah, I don't know that they, they were never required, though. I think I got like a and two. I, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, it's unimaginable to me. I mean, I applied to colleges in like 2017. The idea of not having taken the SAT was so remote. And now there's going to be like years and years of kids that did not have that requirement in place. But Dartmouth, to their credit, actually did an internal study. Um, the the new president asked for it. And they found that it was kids at the, like in the kind of cusp case by case situations where kids from disadvantaged backgrounds whose SATs may not have been as high as the average at Dartmouth, which I will 100% agree that if you have the money for SAT prep and tutoring and stuff, like you can raise your scores. There is a degree of privilege in that. But only by so much from the literature yeah. suggests maybe 50 to 100 points. Yeah, something like that. Um, but, you know, there's I think that there's important context, like an SAT score, a, a kid who has the by far the highest SAT in an inner city school should be considered a little bit differently from a kid who went to a prep school and has the same score potentially. And the Dartmouth study found that it was precisely those kids who weren't sure, you know, their, their SAT score was a little lower than average. So they decided to withhold it. And then they got rejected because the admissions counselors didn't couldn't see that whole holistic vision of them. So it was the people that it was meant to help that it was hurting most. And yet most schools are still going forth with this test optional policy. So, I mean, I agree with you a thousand percent. So I, I think they, the schools want especially after this recent Supreme Court decision, the schools want to be basically unfettered in their ability to import into their class whatever they want yeah. and have it to be so fuzzy that nobody can prove that they did anything mm-hmm. that they weren't supposed to. Yeah. Um, it seems to me so obvious, almost to be laughable to not understand this, that standardized tests are the only fair, well, I have one more thing to say about that, but but are the only fair apples-to-apples comparison Mm -hmm. that you can do among people because exactly as you say, uh, grades don't mean anything. And of course, you know, some neighborhoods will be smarter than other neighborhoods, actually smarter. And even if stand, even if the grades were strictly on a curve in each mm-hmm. neighborhood, you still don't have apples to apples yeah. because the C in one neighborhood, like I know people went to private schools, competitive private schools. Mm-hmm. A C plus in, in those private schools were different than a C plus in my public school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and some combination of standardized tests. And then, and I understand this would, be uh, have a margin of error, but some measure of compensating for the socioeconomic background profile of that student such that we know that based on this life experience, as opposed to the rich private school kid, it's probably not fair. So we will have some, you know, multiple to, to, to add to it. Yeah. As you say, every kid, their parents do their essays. Yeah. Every recommendation, their parents' friends write the recommendations. Mm-hmm. The grades are meaningless. So, so like what, what? I mean, so let's get rid of SATs as well. So, what are you going yeah. on? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's. I, I've always been a proponent of socioeconomic affirmative action and looking at people through 
the lens of contextual excellence. Like I, I came from the Lawrenceville school. I went to a hoity toity boarding school and like, I, I'm very like aware of the advantages that come with that and getting a college counselor when you're like a junior in, in high school and, and having someone who's just built into your day-to-day school life that's helping you and figuring out like my I mean my mom just like randomly applied to schools that she heard of because her parents hadn't gone to college and or her dad did but you know they weren't holding her hand through it and it's like a night and day situation like I completely think there should be a way to say like this kid is really gifted and talented or even you know this kid's grades might not be awesome but they were working like shifts after school at night and their SAT is actually exceptional and I mean this is it's I think it's an attack on meritocracy. I think there's actually like the the soft bigotry of low expectations at play here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I it makes me question even more the value of these um, these degrees and stuff. I mean, I'm taking classes right now at Columbia. I I dropped out of NYU and I'm just taking classes here and there because I got in. Um, just I'd like to take John McWhorter's class and I don't plan to finish my degree in the end, but. Like, I, I don't really know what it means that I got in there because, I mean, I applied with my SAT scores. I was happy with them, but it was optional. And, like, who else is in my class and how do they even know who these kids are, where they came well, from? But you already have accomplishments to, to – Yeah, I think the whole the whole uh, educational industrial complex, if you will, is due to, to collapse anyway. I think I see the future as more people like Ricky not even finishing school, learning what they need to learn. I think there's going to be less emphasis – Going forward on that degree, more emphasis on what what do you know, what can you do? You know, we see a lot of people in computer science that don't even finish their their their. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I mean, Elon Musk. Well, he finished Penn, but he didn't finish grad school. But I, I think race is obviously our um, most difficult, intractable issue in this country. If, no if, comments if, on that. Okay. Yeah. If the if if the country were all one race, then. It would be a relatively simple matter to agree on a fair way to figure out, but different, different, you know. Oh, then I feel like we would we would splinter out into whatever different little nuances we would pick for ourselves. I feel like it's human nature to be tribal. Though. No, but I would say we, we're going to have standardized tests, and we're going to help. You know, we're going to take into account that you came from these poor neighborhoods, yeah. you these rich neighborhoods, and we wouldn't, and then we would not worry about the final mix because it's you know. But we're we're, we're very 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 afraid of the racial disparities. And, and by the way, it's a terrible look. Mm-hmm. It, it's, I, I don't, I don't discount it. And what I've, what I've always said, and I think it, I think I'm right about this is that what this country needs to do and it will solve all our problems is to focus on grammar school children being up to grade level mm-hmm. from kindergarten through the sixth grade. Yeah. And I think if we did that, all the other problems would disappear. And if we don't do that, it's ridiculous to think you're going to fix it when they're applying to college. You can't catch if, yeah. you, if you if you're not on grade level by sixth grade. Yeah, you are not going to catch up at Columbia. Well, what if what yeah. if what you're suggesting doesn't solve the disparities? Oh, it, well, I mean, I, disparities don't have to disappear. Do you know Rob Henderson? No, he's um, he coined this term luxury beliefs, which is like um, he uses it to describe the sort of beliefs that people you need to be from a point of privilege to hold them like for example like defund the police but i live in a doorman building in the upper east side type people who are actively holding views that are counterproductive for the very people they're trying to protect um but that's an aside he has a memoir that um i think it comes out later this month that's about 
him growing up in foster care and, and the like fundamental kind of childhood changes that he would like to see in the system that would help people ultimately, which sounds very much like what you're saying. So you might enjoy it. Yeah, I'll check it out. I mean, if, if you if I were to tell you, uh, we said this before, that um, in the sixth grade, these uh, 10 kids had, you know, were, were reading at, you know, <clears throat> high school level. And these other 10 kids were reading at first grade level. And mm-hmm. that, by the way, this is not a or third grade. This is not an exaggeration because that's actually what you have there. And I say, what do you predict about the how many doctors are going to be from this class? I mean, it's obvious that you, we, we all know if you, if, you, if you think back to your friends when you were young mm-hmm. and you know who the kids were doing and you see what has become of them as adults, mm-hmm. it's almost always completely predictable. Yeah. That the smart kids are all, and, and, the, and then the kids who, I don't want to say they weren't smart, but the kids who were not attending to their schoolwork yeah. and maybe less intelligent, um, amounted to very little, right? Yeah. I think there's a disproportionate emphasis put on um, like college matriculation rates and, and graduation rates that is not really put upon kids at younger ages for sure. Um, and, and can I retract amounted to very little because that's actually sounds snobby and it doesn't actually reflect the way I think. It amounts to little in terms of the, the statistics that we that people are concerned about. Yeah. The ultimate outcomes, yeah. Yeah, like I, I don't look down on them in some way. I'm not saying they yeah. amount it's little. I'm saying that this, we're worried about these disparities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. By the way, before the before you came, Ricky, uh, Noam said to me, well, would you, yeah, do you have things to ask Ricky about? Uh, implying that we'd be short of uh, subject matter. But <laughs> as is typically the case, Noam had, was more than... No, I, I said that because you he he's been he's a huge fan of yours, and he's been he must I must be like t- is Perel falling asleep? You t- you look like Bill Clinton at a at a <laughs> speech. Um, uh, uh, Bill Clinton is a con, uh, you know a, a freelance contributor to the Atlantic in good standing. Um, uh, uh, Dan, uh, there's like 10, 15, 20 emails. Ricky Schlott, Ricky Schlott, well, it was Ricky Schlott. So I would, so I would say, well, you must have you must. Be- well, um, yeah, well, she, I've also met her in person. Uh. And uh, figured I have she's a friend of the seller and yeah. would be a good fit. And I was right because this episode was quite good in my estimation. Uh, so what, what else is on your mind these days? Um, hmm. I mean, I so I, this is the first semester that I'm taking classes at Columbia. I got in like a year and a half ago and deferred and deferred and deferred. And they were like, if you're not coming, you're not coming. So, so you, you don't have a college degree? No, I dropped out of NYU. Well, actually, I, I during the pandemic, um, I, I was a sophomore and... They, Are you a prodigy? How did you become Greg Lukianoff's co-writer when you didn't have a college degree? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> Bill Gates ain't got a college degree. I'll give you, I'll give you the the very abbreviated version. But basically, I was a sophomore at NYU. The, the pandemic happened. I finished my sophomore spring on Zoom. My mom, uh, they didn't give us any tuition break. Full tuition for Zoom school for the fall. And my mom was like, "Yeah, if you do something like interesting and good, I'll float you through one semester financially to take a leave of absence and then we'll go back when it's normal in the spring." Which of course it wasn't. I like. wish I didn't have a college degree. I wish I grew up in a sewer. <laughs> I mean because she finished her story. I thought it was done. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> just halfway through. Go ahead. So, I, I took listen. a semester off. I I heard every word. <laughs> <laughs> I took a semester off. I um I read all the books that had accumulated on my bedside table that I had not read, which I'd been like assigned the Communist Manifesto like five times ac- across the first two semesters or two years I was at NYU, but I'd never read John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, and it was like a kind of switch flipped in my brain, um, and I I just felt like I had a, a different understanding of freedom and what it meant to be an American and why it was so precious, and I needed to protect it at the very time that I 
felt a lot of my freedoms were being kind of trampled upon during the pandemic. Um, and also just in 2020 when it feels like free speech and, and tolerance went out the window in a lot of ways um, and cancel culture went so rampant. So I started submitting op-eds to the New York Post. An editor there um, picked me up and, and she became a mentor of mine. And I interviewed Greg for like my third op-ed about whether... Greg Lugianoff, yeah. Yeah, about whether... Gen- Keep thinking Greg Lugianis, go ahead. <laughs> Um, so I interviewed him from like my third article about whether Gen Z uh, could be uncoddled by the pandemic, which the answer isn't actually no, but I was hoping yes. <laughs> um, and so then he offered me a fellowship on that call, and then that fellowship turned into a, a book, and here I am. I, I think, to, to follow up on a statement I had made prior that didn't get a whole lot of traction here on the podcast, uh, I think this is the trend people college it, it, we're going to see a complete collapse. If you if you want to get an electrical engineering degree, I guess you got to go to college. But for most people, I think it's bullshit, and I think that's how things are going to. Uh, in the future, everybody's going to be like Ricky. They're not going to. It's it's just like if you got the money and you want to hang around and read books and sit under a tree and go to frat parties, then do that. But I don't think employers are going to prioritize it. Mm. I predict in 20 years it's going to be completely different. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's certainly a value to a classical liberal education, which I just don't think is what's on offer at schools right now. Um, I mean, I don't want to, like, denigrate the institution entirely, but in its its current form, I think it completely is deserving of that. But, you know, to your point, and I, I found an editor at The Post, Margie Conklin, who, like, took me under her wing and taught me reporting by doing reporting. And then I have decided I'm just going to take this one class, kind of have my little victory lap on an Ivy League campus and then be an Ivy League dropout. But I um, and it gives you more street cred. Now you're like it's a cool <laughs> thing. I think to not finish. No, it, it's true. And I, I went. I've I've been there for. I I take one class a week. I think this is like my third one. The second one, I couldn't get onto campus without going through an NYPD checkpoint because the protests were getting so out of control. And I'm like, what is like this? It got worse since I left college campuses. But <laughs> to your to your point, the other day I tried to go study in the School of Journalism library because I thought that'd be cool, and my ID <laughs> bounced because I'm technically an undergrad plebe and I don't I'm not worthy of being in the journalism department where people are learning to do the job that I'm doing. Which I think, like, there's there's totally a, a case to be made for apprenticeships and learning by doing and employers being open-minded to the potential that a kid who maybe went down their own path or, you know, took a gap year in part-time school. I, I think there's so many different routes to success that we're finally opening our eyes to, but it took such a shock to the system of, like, higher education just totally, like, self-detonating. And who did, like, who decided, like, somebody somewhere at some point decided a bachelor's degree means four years and this many, but somebody decided that. There's nothing written in stone from Mount Sinai that says the four years and X number of credits is a valid education and two credits less and you're, and and you didn't, and you don't have the degree. I mean, who, who gives a shit? How about can you do the job? Yeah. How about that? You know? Yeah, I mean, my dad's generation, he doesn't have a degree. That wasn't, like, a huge thing. It went from being, like, a luxury or, or a privilege or, like, a, a plus on your resume to being, like, a de facto requirement to even participate in polite society. I think it's it's interesting to see how people, like, I, I definitely don't want to be the kid who comes from, like, the Lawrenceville School and had a great education who's, like, no one needs to go to college. I think there's huge, huge benefits and, and the class mobility that it, in some cases, can provide is completely worth it and there are fundamental lessons that I was fortunate to have learned at, a, at an earlier age 
just being at one of those types of schools. But I also like I, I do feel that it's important to like put myself out there as someone who did take a different path and say that that's possible. I'm a huge advocate for gap years. I think I accidentally took one during the pandemic and um, giving kids more time to decide what path they want to take and, and evaluate whether a degree is necessary for it or what this like gender studies degree actually means in the job market um, is probably a plus, but I do think that we... We're and take a class in gender studies. So take, I, 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 I have, have a theory about all this. I have a theory on everything. Yeah, go ahead. Shut up, Max. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Max didn't say, did Max say anything? <laughs> he lagged. <laughs> okay. My theory is that um, college... First, first of all, it used to be uh, um, very challenging. It was mostly required courses. You had to read Shakespeare, you know, mm. it's, and it 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 was for the smartest people. And so, and it's funny. I was reading Leon Weaseltier interview today because I'm researching his stuff, and he talked about going to college, and this professor enthralled him, and this person, this professor, just opened his eye. And I'm like, I never had an experience like that. I never, yeah. I never took a class. I just trying to figure out how to get through it, you know? Mm -hmm. So there are people out there who, who are awakened by education. They're smart, usually. And college was for them. So then college, and these people are very able, and they do great things. And then people began to think, oh, because they went to college, that gave them the skills yeah. to do that. But this college never had anything to do with them having these yeah. skills. They were drawn to college because they were these type of people. I said, well, if it works for them, let's give it to everybody. So they yeah. start, but it's actually that kind of, that's a little bit too challenging. Not everybody could take Shakespeare. But, so then they yeah. give it to everybody and then they dumb down all the courses and it became meaningless. And, now peop, and I know as an employer, I, I deal with people who are college educated. They can't even write paragraphs. Mm -hmm. it, it, is, it is now meaningless. Yeah. And now people will begin to rethink the whole thing, but like like so many things, my father um, didn't even graduate high school, but he was brilliant. It's not it's it's not the the uh, causation is backwards. It's not yeah. that the college made great people. Great people went to college. Yeah, I would say actually though, I think it's inverted too. Where there's, it used to be that that the educational system incentivized independent thought and like pushing back on ideas and grappling with too. them. And now there's a what I'm seeing, and maybe it's because of the world that I move in, but I'm seeing that those like exceptional thinkers who are who wanna like push back against something and play devil's advocate and engage with ideas and who have a love of learning and curiosity and and want to look at both sides of an argument are the exact people who are getting squeezed out of the system right now because there's such a like Caitlin Flanagan had a great article about this in the She's Atlantic recently. Right? I love her. Um, about how the the new mission of a university professor it used to be, you know, give you evidence and then you come to your own conclusion. And now it's completely inverted where it's like, here's the conclusion and now you go find your evidence to come to it. And that was 100% my experience throughout college. I felt like any sort of dissent was just like, it, it was social suicide. It was going to hurt my GPA. Um, and And you're basically, even at a school like NYU and in all honors classes and stuff, you're basically ascribed like as long as you can su like support the viewpoint that is okay then you're going to get an A and that's what I learned to do I wrote essays that I didn't believe in I had a final exam essay like 20% of our grade um which like in class essay that I'm going to fudge like the exact quote of it but it was basically like 
Disregarding what you know from history, explain why Marx's vision for society is the best possible one. Like how, <laughs> how is that an intellectual exercise? And, you know, I, I it, it's definitely no longer teaching you how to think. And I think that the people who are independent original thinkers are exactly the people who get like disgusted by the system. So. But they know. are the people who make a lot of money on Substack. <laughs> you know, no, like there is, there is a big marketplace for yeah. these people who think for themselves. It's which, mm -hmm. it's, which is very interesting, right? Totally. You put, you, you put any of these run-of-the-mill thinkers on CNN, no one watches them, no mm -hmm. one cares. It's just like noise. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, what, what, uh, we got time for one more. What, what else is uh, bugging you? Oh gosh. Or maybe it's bugging not bugging me? you. Maybe something that that you think is okay. <sighs> um, so many things bug me all the time. Um, I think, I, I mean, I'll bring up 2024. I'm, I'm like existentially dreading that. And I feel the election. Yeah. And I feel completely, um, failed by both the major political parties and the duopoly right now. And Would I'm you very... just write something about kids your age? I don't think kids, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Young people <laughs> that are not Dang. voting. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, you did your homework. Oh, yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, there's a, a considerably lower percentage of Gen Zers who are planning to vote in 2024. And like, I completely understand why. Lower than the historical trend lower or than lower, than, lower than 2020? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's so much disaffection and just like, blah, why should I, if it's too 80 something year old candidates who the majority of the country statistically in almost every poll say that they don't want another Trump Biden matchup. It feels like there's no real democratic input ahead of the primaries in any meaningful way. And like each party just is profiting from the lack of options on the other side. Um, and so is, is it the same? My, my gut, I haven't really followed the polls. My gut is that to my chagrin, Trump voters are happy Trump's the nominee. I mean, they've they've had choices. They, Trump voters, sure, but I mean, I not Bi Biden voters are would prefer a different candidate. The Trump voters are fully, happy with their with their Trump. I don't fully agree with that um, because it's you know he's getting like what fifty sixty percent of the primary voters, and so there's almost half of registered primary Republican voters who don't want him. Plus, all of the independents who might ultimately compromise and decide to vote for him and I, I mean I have so many people that I know and love who voted for Trump and felt enormously compromised by that decision but they were like on the fence and so I do think that there's all there are so many people including Republicans who'd be perfectly happy to have someone else yeah there's some but let me put it this way if Biden he's too old but let's just suspend his age for a second. if Biden were to lose now in 2024 in 2028 He's not even going to show up on the radar in terms of being able to run for president again. He will have zero support. He will be done. Yeah. Trump, Trump, he Trump vanquished DeSantis, a... Haley. I mean, real, real candidates, you know, he, anyway. Yeah, I mean, among, oh, so it's like a third of the country who's a registered yeah. Republican, roughly. Yeah. And it's about half of them who are voting for Trump in the primary. So it is still, it's <clears throat> yeah, the fringes right. who, who get to make these decisions for the rest of the country. What do you think about uh, no? Wait, wait, I want to say something about Biden. So for the, I've been a, a very slow to accuse him of being senile or or dementia. I've been saying for years now that he just seems like an old man. Like I, I have old people in my family have had. I remember my grandparents. They were never senile, but they would forget where they put the keys. They'd forget names. Whatever. I would not want my dad to be president yeah. right now. But he's not senile. 
No, but he, you know. So yesterday there were two things that went up. One, one is that he confused uh, Macron with, he said Mitterrand instead of Macron. Yeah. I'm like, well, all right. Mitterrand was president of France for a long time and they're both M's and, you know, I like, tired. That's really didn't phase me. But then it, it appeared that he couldn't come up with the word Hamas. Mm. And he said, uh, um, the, the opposition. Mm-hmm. And that made me think, no, that, that might be a bridge too far for me to excuse. If, if you're the president yeah. of the United States and you can't come up with the word Hamas, I don't see how you're going to be president for four years. I don't see yeah. it. But, you know, dementia, certainly a negative, but uh, not a deal breaker necessarily, depending on who's <laughs> on the other side. No, not not a deal breaker, but but why is this like? Like I'm taking a fundamental issue with the fact that that's what we're left to choose from. You're like, right. Nobody's happy You're about absolutely that. Absolutely right. And like when you the first election I really remember is 2016, and there's, I mean, I, it made me really politically animated be, out of hate for all of the options before me, but for so many young people who only remember that, like it just makes them think, why should I bother in American politics if no one at the table is even vaguely representative of my own personal interest at all. Well, what do you, Noam uh, takes the point of view that because New York always goes Democratic anyway, he can just stay home in Ardsley and not vote. That's mm, true. Although those are... Some... I don't have to feel bad about my protest vote, which always goes to some like libertarian candidate. Yeah, I, I don't vote, but, but I'm, being, I'm, being, I'm being urged to register as a Democrat and, and vote against Jamal Bauman in the, in the uh, primary. People are telling mm. me I need to do that. Not, yeah, that's not, also another thing that I take issue with, too, is that if you're an independent here in New York, you can't vote in primaries, yeah. which is crazy. Like, why is almost half of the people who are, I don't know if the exact demographics in New York, but, like, almost half of people identify as an independent, and why should the moderate people be precisely the people who do not have a say in the first go-round of an election? Like, they're the, who you want to be making the decisions. Yeah, well, the primary system is not good. The, the smoke-filled rooms were, were much better. Um, <laughs> I, I know you don't vote, Noam, but I'm perfectly content— to allow you to choose how I vote, since you're better informed than me. I think you need to know everything there is to know, Dan. I don't, I don't think there's much uh, about policy that, uh, it, that you would bring to bear in this election. You have two personalities. You have to decide who you think is uh, more trustworthy with his finger on the button. Keep, keep us, uh, well, you've, made, you, you've said <laughs> that that would be Biden. I believe it would be Biden, yeah. Okay. Well, then I guess I'm voting Biden. Um, no comment. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm not on a policy basis. I'm probably not probably. I definitely lean more towards Trump, who they call a conservative, but is not not particularly conservative. Uh, you know, um, but the, I don't think policy was ever the issue with Trump. No. Yeah, it, it's him and. Um, you know he 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 can, he can call Kim Kim Jong Un a, a rocket man and get away with that, but I don't know if I'd want that kind of uh, mouthing off in this current world crisis. Yeah, no, I and I don't know if he'd have the sense not to do it. I don't know. I agree. On the other hand, there is the argument that he's he's so bellicose and, and unpredictable that maybe that would deter bad actors in the world. You you can't rule that out, but you can't assume that either. You, yeah. I don't know. But it all comes back to what you're saying. It's ridiculous that these are our choices. We shouldn't have to be having this kind of discussion. These are undeterminable issues. It's a hardly feels like a democracy in any meaningful way, the way that it's run right now. All right. This too will pass.
It's t- hmm. one th- one thing. You, you know what? The half that that's the half uh, empty version of it. <clears throat> the half full version of it is what an amazing country this is mm-hmm. that we can have e- either of these two bozos. And actually, if you don't get up and read the news, and this, I felt this way when Trump was president, you probably will not even notice the difference. That's true. Even if they, whatever policies they do, the, the, the country is not really about the president. It's about our system. It's about our freedom. It's about capitalism. It's about the dynamism of our population. And um, so long as some something else far away in the world doesn't really upend us, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Unless something else far away in the world does upend us, yeah, there's always that possibility. But that very uh, real but, possibility these days. Uh, but there's no, there's no, there's no telling which president would, you know, be better. You could take your guess which president would be better than that. I mean, if you look, just said we gotta go. But if you look at the things Trump did, that his uh, uh, opponents predicted would end in disaster. Yeah, killing of Soleimani, moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, Supreme Court. That was a big one. You know, none of the disasters. Well, we, Roe yeah. Ro being like, overturned was, I guess. A, no, I'm talking about on the world stage. Okay. On the world stage. But uh, then, like the next day, he's like, maybe we should put the light inside the body to kill the COVID. Uh-huh. So like, <laughs> he, he, he couldn't let it sit. <laughs> well, you know, he gets a bum rap on that. He, he actually does because because we just had uh, Donald McNeil on the show. So first of all, there is a technology to kill uh, viruses with light. Mm-hmm. He, he was right about that. But then what's even worse is he talked about applying the disinfectant directly to the lungs. Yeah. If you Google it, you will see at least two serious scientific studies where they tested the inhalation of disinfectant. Not not the injection, but the inhalation but to see if it would kill. One was for COVID, I think, and one was for uh, the flu. One was ethanol and one was vinegar or something. So, you know, it... it they turn. It was a dumb thing to say. The president shouldn't be riffing on medical technology, <laughs> but but obviously I his, op- it here, his op- apparently it, it went by. Who even it was like a daytime? Nobody's even listening. His opponents turned it into a huge thing, and then they yeah. said, "Isn't this the dumbest thing in the world?" You know, it was like you know. What would you, so apropos of everything we've discussed on this show, cancel yeah. culture, uh, you know, th- um, this sort of thing. Um, Old dads. Um, which president? Do you think will make any difference in that regard? Either either one of them. In what regard? In the regard to how do we get beyond this current climate where where where, where free speech the ver- the very notions of free speech. I don't think the president can move it that much. I would say in retrospect, and again, this is also taking the personality out of it. Hillary Clinton is 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 a good moderate sweet spot, I believe for what would have made a good president as as was Mitt Romney like I years ago I used to say I don't think the people who were supporting Hillary as opposed to supporting Romney even remember what the issues that divided them were like it was oh it was $13 minimum wage as opposed to four like you know like these were they were such minor issues but that kind of like common sense middle ground president yeah you know these people who can't even seem to get any support anymore. I don't know. But that, you know, I don't know who it'll listen. These guys are so old. The next generation will take over. I'm I'm very optimistic about America. We're, we're in such better situation than the rest of the world. We can't see it. Population wise, we're better off uh, uh, population replacement wise. I mean, we have our issues. But this is this country is great. We're going to be fine. 
I'm very glad to hear that. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> what what what's bad? What's terrible is going to happen? There there are terrible things. Like they shouldn't be giving out life saving medicine based on race. They shouldn't have been uh, making Asians pretend they were white to get into college. You know, we have. They we shouldn't always... be brainwashing our children to be anti semites. Well, yeah, that's right. They shouldn't be brainwashing our children to be anti semites. But our country is self correcting. I hope you're right. I hope so too. It really is. I mean, do you think there's any, put it this way, do you think there's any time in the last 100, 150 years where if you were having this discussion, you wouldn't have had very serious issues that you could have brought up in this discussion to make the case that we have a lot to be worried about as Americans. We're facing terrible headwinds. The, the, the world has always had issues. The country's always had issues. Those issues were much worse and much more dangerous than, than our issues now. Our parents lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, World War II, Vietnam. Imagine being in Vietnam and all the teenagers are one year away, they're going off to die in Vietnam. That's the good old days, right? That's when the country was operating well. Yeah. We're doing great. All right. Um, <laughs> thank you, Erica, better known as Ricky Schlott, for joining us. Um, I thought a very instructive me. discussion. I'm giving myself a pat on the back for for uh, good, requesting uh, Ricky as a guest. I usually she was overdue. She's yeah, yeah, thanks yeah, and, and uh, she's a friend of our dear friend uh, Michael Moynihan's, I believe. Mm, yeah, I Camille. I was out with Camille that night, but oh. I do know Michael too. Okay, yeah, anyway. but I know, the, I know the, the, fifth, the fifth column guys. Yeah, they're cool. They're fun. Anyway, her book, uh, The Canceling of the American Mind, and her column in the New York Post. Thank you, Periel and Maxwell, uh, our magician with the sound. And podcast at ComedyCellar.com for questions, comments, and suggestions. Bye-bye. Bye.